Detroit Roundtable podcast. I'm John Cronshaw. And I'm Shane Thomas. And tonight we have John Mizeros, and we are talking about Japanese mythology, which he researched for his book, At Yomi's Gate. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right in. Uh, what made you choose to write into Japanese mythology? I've always loved fantasy, even growing up. I originally, I didn't want to just do another, like, Western fantasy based off medieval Europe. And I wanted to sit in another culture. And the one I knew best at the time was Japan, because I grew up in the 90s, and I was really into anime when that was just starting to get started. You know, after I watched a bunch of anime, I actually was going to learn more about the culture behind it. So I read a lot of books about Japanese history, Japanese culture. Uh, there's this great series I found called What's Japanese in Japanese Anime by, um, oh, man, I hope I pronounced this guy's name right, Giles Poitres. He was a librarian who made these two books about cultural things you see in anime, like what's a hibachi, what is a uh, transom in Japan. There's a lot of cool things. So that really influenced you know, my interest in Japanese culture. And so I decided I would set my book in Japan. So I did more research on it and uh, tried to get it as a uh, – give it as much of a feel of being in ancient Japan. But it wasn't like super hard. It's definitely not historical fantasy or historical fiction. Like, let me cut in right there. Have you ever had hibachi? Yes, definitely. I have eaten at the American hibachis at the big old table where they, they cook the meal right there in front of you. I've definitely eaten those. Oh, yeah, and the sake and the mustard bottle. <laughs> I've been there. Those guys are so talented. Not only can they cook on a grill uh, for anyone that hasn't been, they're also pretty funny, and they do little – you know, acts like swirling the egg around on the knife and making volcano out of onion. It's If anyone hasn't been, I highly recommend. In Japan, hibachi literally is just like a little stove that they used to keep warm, you keep to keep warm in winter. So <laughs> hibachi we think of is way more fun. It, yeah, it's come a long way. <laughs> With the myths, and I mean, where were we researching this? You know, were you looking at any of the traditional texts or was it more kind of modern collections and things like that? I can't read Japanese, so I couldn't go to the, like, the primary sources. But, uh, you know, I found a lot of books, uh, the history of it. This was actually before the internet really got big, so it wasn't as easy to Google stuff at that time, so I actually had to go hunt down books about Japanese culture in uh, the library or at bookstores. Luckily, I lived, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which has the University of Michigan right there, so they have a huge university library where I could go in there and find tons of stuff about Japanese culture, obscure books about Japanese myth, Japanese history, daily life. I did a lot of research on just daily life in medieval Japan to get some of the nuances, make it feel like, make the ordinary world feel real. This isn't academic in any way, but before reading John M.'s book at Yomi's Gate, I think my largest exposure to Japanese fantasy was the anime Ninja Scroll. Have you guys seen that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen Ninja oh, yeah. Scroll. <laughs> That was one of the iconic anime fighting fantasy horror anime. I remember different. Oh, yeah. It was right up there with Battle Angel Alita. Yeah, like Akira and a wind named Amnesia and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, man. Akira's great, yeah. Big one was Fist of the North Star, which is (laughs) basically Mad Max from Japan. Uh, The the big one for me from the 80s was uh, Vampire Hunter D. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like Vampire Hunter D. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in that vein, uh, Netflix has yeah, Castlevania. I started watching Castlevania a bit. Oh, yeah, I have too. I love that show. I've got um, another podcast that I did last year called Otaku on Writing, which was basically the three of us who were looking at these classic anime. And, you know, we did Vampire Hunter D and we did uh, Akira and stuff like that in order to inspire original fiction of our own. So, yeah, these films are quite recent when I've revisited them. 
Yeah, I think a lot of them definitely hold up. We reviewed seven films. We did it on like a bit of a three-week cycle. So we'd watch a film, see what we could learn as writers, and then we'd brainstorm an original idea based on that, and then we'd write it and publish it. So we were basically releasing monthly anthologies with these stories in. And we did things like A Wind Named Amnesia, and so we ended up writing kind of post-apocalyptic stories that were from the perspective of Ooh, rats and cockroaches and stuff. That's neat. <laughs> that sounds cool. <laughs> and then with um, Akira, we ended up writing stories that were... I ended up writing one that was basically about a conspiracy theorist, someone like a bit of an Alex Jones character. He was visited by a alien being that showed him the truth about everything. But because he was a conspiracy theorist, nobody believed him. So, <laughs> um, and then what else? Yeah, there was just oh, Project Echo. I don't know if you ever saw that one. That was it. Sounds fantastic. Film. <laughs> Is that the one with it's the like, cat girls? No, that's Dominion Tampa Police. We did that one as well. <laughs> but now, Project Echo was the one that was basically just a, a parody of everything anime. The one like, that got metafiction and the writers lived down the hall from Aiko and like one of them had a crush on the girl that always died. That's Excel Saga. Yeah, that was even more meta. It was like there was no fourth wall. The, the <laughs> I remember that the, the anime artist was like a character in the first episode who oh, yeah. <laughs> almost gets killed. By the- that was part of the inspiration for my current parody uh, that I run on Science Fantasy Hub called Parodia, where it's just that, uh, you know, I fall into my own writing. That was, it was such a great concept. And I'm a hack, so now I'm outed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, cool. You, you still like an artist. It's good. That was the whole uh, <laughs> inspiration behind that. But, um, now we did, um, Guyver as well. I don't know if you ever. Oh, yeah. And I saw that. I saw the anime and I remember the movie. Mark Hamill was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't hold up, unfortunately, that one. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's goofy, but the, the monster yeah. makeup's amazing in that one. Yeah. I loved the miniseries, Eerie as Zero. Yeah, it was like it was a, a six part miniseries with, uh, the girl's older brother is a bounty hunter who's killed on the first mission and then she picks up with his partner to try to hunt down the monster Zerum. That was based off a movie where Zerum is like the, the main creature there and he's, he's weird and he transforms and he's, got a lot of body horror going on i remember that i remember watching that on the old sci-fi channel <laughs> that's interesting i've not not seen the show did you ever see like monster city as well and wicked city and doom megalopolis that i think was about the same time. i have seen doom megalopolis and possibly wicked yeah. city but it's been too long to recall to date myself i used to hunt down vhs tapes of anime <laughs> oh, yeah. at various yeah. video stores and i'd had two VHS cassette recorders, and I'd basically pirate it so I could have a copy after I rented it. I had a huge collection of VHS tapes, all subtitled, of course. <laughs> the mythology stuff, then, I'm, I'm quite interested in that, because I, I remember reading about this idea of, like, an eight-headed dragon that lived on eight mountains and it had a sword in the end of its tail. And what was it? there was one about a, a boy who was, like, an inch high who went around fighting rats with a needle and stuff. Oh yeah, like. uh, the, the eight-headed dragon. I think I think that's the legend of Susano, who is like a was a major de- deity in uh, Japanese mythology. He gets the dragon drunk with eight barrels of sake yeah, and yeah, yeah. kills Lord <laughs> Kusanagi out of his tail. There seems to be like levels of deity. Like there's the three is it three main kami the calls and it, yeah, and then it, uh, kami. They're their word for kami's. It's it's used to refer to gods, but it's really more like spirits. Uh, Japan's main religion, Shinto, is uh, animistic, whereas the idea is that everything, everything has a soul. Rocks, plants, 
inanimate objects, animals, people, everything's got a soul. And kami are the soul essence or basically the, the animating force. So gods can be kami, but also like a spirit living in a rock can be kami or a particularly prestigious historical person. When they die, they can become a kami. So it's a pretty broad blanket term for a lot of different spirits. There's like a creation myth where there's like a clash between three kamis. There's one of them like dips a sword into some lake and then he swirls it and then that creates matter and that's actually I used that myth in the book. That's the uh that's not like the myth of Izanagi and Izanami, the the creator deities of Japan. And they're um male and female, they they dip their sword in the ocean, whip it around, pull and all the brine that comes off of it becomes islands. In the original myth, it's all very sexual. It's it's clear yeah. that it's describing divine procreation. There's no mincing about what's going on. <laughs> they're like making it epic by making like a jeweled sword, a jeweled uh, lance and everything. But no, it's, it's sex. That's the thing as well with anime, isn't it? It's, there's just so much sex. Cause we used to get the films over here on channel four, which is just like a public broadcast channel. And it used to be on quite late at night, but they were quite censored. So when I got the actual videos of them, they were like, Oh right. This was actually a really dirty mm. film. <laughs> but yeah. I did. I didn't realize when I watched it. You gotta really be careful with the, especially the older anime, what you share with your kids. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of them were for adults, so there's different standards what's acceptable in Japan. Like, certain types of nudity are okay. Like, uh, if you ever watched the original Uncensored Dragon Ball. I was Goku gonna was say, around. the movies, the end of the season recap movies for original mm-hmm. Dragon Ball, not Dragon Ball Z, they always had a couple of sex jokes, especially between, uh, Roshi and Bulma. And in one episode, uh, Goku gropes Bulma just when he, it's the first girl he's ever met, so he doesn't know what boobs are. So, <laughs> and that's, that's some of the cleaner anime. I think it was like Devil Man and, and Yurisuka Doji and things like that, where it's just like, right, this is, oh, that's this just, is a bit, oh yeah, that's out and out pornography. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's different standards of what's acceptable with nudity and sexuality in Japan. And some of the really pornographic ones actually had pretty good stories as well. Um, the Devil Man story was really good. Uh, Crying Freeman was really good. I think that was late 70s anime. He was an assassin, but he was like brainwashed or something. So every time he killed, he cried. Uh, that was yeah. very sexual, but it was a great storyline. And there were a couple other, um, there was one with a teen girl assassin who was, you know, kind of abused by her older male mentor. The name escapes me, uh, but that was storyline was just incredible. But it's because normally you wouldn't find if you find some kind of smutty film out west, it's you're not going to have great, great writing. It's funny. There's an anime, which I still it's a guilty pleasure for me. It's called uh, Cutie Honey. Um, It's actually the first uh, it's it's a Japanese heroine from the 70s, which was designed to appeal to both boys and girls. She's an android who can transform into a superhero. It's, it's actually, it's a really fun show. Honey's really like a really cool, passionate character. But then like the creator, Go Nagai, he, uh, to make the show appeal to little boys, uh, when Honey transforms, her clothes all shred off and she's naked for a few seconds before her clothes reform. The funny thing is that whole naked transformation thing has gotten incorporated into magical girl shows throughout anime. So you'll see like Sailor Moon or, any other number of shows where the female character is naked for a few seconds while her costume is assembled. And in those shows, it's not usually sexualized. It's not meant to titillate. It's just like, oh. If I recall correctly, in Sailor Moon, they, it was just like the glowing silhouette of their figure, right? Yeah, I think in that show it was. 
Um, maybe been different in Japan. I don't know, but yeah, it was glowing silhouette. But there are other shows where there's, yeah, there's nudity. And it all comes from this cutie honey show. The show itself, again, it's fun. And the stories are really simple. It's just honey fighting these other villains. But I remember it being really fun. Like, she's got a fun personality. She's not just like a, either, she's not either like a crazy, scary killer or just a bimbo. She's actually like goofy and she like quips all the time. And she's actually really nice, uh, really kind to people. I really like the fact that she's compassionate, which actually kind of shows up in some of the female characters I've created for some of my works. They're compassionate, but also fierce if they need to be. I really enjoyed Sakura. Is that how you say it? I hope yeah. so, because that's how I read it in the excerpt. <laughs> yeah, Sakura. yeah, she was an interesting character. And I don't want to spoil that, but uh, it, it was easy to relate to her. I liked Sakura a lot. She's, uh, she's got a lot of anger. Rightfully so, a lot of stuff has happened to her. Yeah, she's got this anger that's boiling over, but she's also got these powers. She can control fire and magma, so she's got these fearsome powers. And when that's coupled with her anger, it causes some serious destruction. So part of the story I thought was interesting was having her explore this fact, dealing with the fact that she has such destructive powers and she needs to get control of them. When she gets upset, it's for better or worse, depending on, you know, it's, it's friend or foe around. Hey, let's talk about the world building. I know there were a lot of different centipede monsters and a lot of different ghosts and stuff. The centipede monster, um, AOE, she's what's called a, a Seiko May. It's part of a longer name. It, it's basically just, uh, she, I took the name Seiko May are just like furies. They're uh, guardians of the underworld and they uh, keep people inside. They chase people out. I got them from a, book on Japanese mythology, and they're not really very well described in the book. They're just these hags that chase people. But uh, somewhere along the line, I turned them into centipede women. It just kind of was playing around with that and had, had fun with it. They just they came out being centipede women. Yeah, there's that myth, isn't there? There's the story about the guy who goes into the underworld, and I think it's a little bit... I can't remember who it is. There's like a Greek myth that's very similar to it, where you know he's not allowed to look at his wife who's in the underworld and he does and she's like the hag of death or something like yeah, that and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Orpheus uh, going after Eurydice the story I took is actually it's the god Izanagi going after his wife Izanami when she's dead and in the underworld and it's the same thing as with Orpheus he goes down there to look for her when he sees Izanami she's all rotted and she's got maggots crawling in her and she's horrified she doesn't want him to see her like that so she freaks out and he's horrified he runs away but she's so upset by him seeing her that she sends like <laughs> She turns the maggots into these dragons that chase him down, and she sends all the spirits of the underworld after him. It's, it's a big, epic chase. And so they kind of crept into the book a little bit. Awesome. I also like the uh, – what was the religion? Uh, the girl, she would do the paper symbols, and she was kind of like the Ghostbuster. The Ghostbuster. That's a good, that's a good term for her. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, Ikuko. She's what's called a Miko. Uh, in Japan, they're shrine priestesses. In modern day, shrine priestesses are mainly uh, assistants at – Japanese shrines, but centuries ago, they used to be much more powerful. They're mediums between the world of the living and the world of the dead. So they would communicate with ghosts, and they would exercise ghosts. Ghost exorcisms were a, were a big thing in Japan. And for this book, it also made her able to, talk, to see the supernatural and communicate with supernatural beings. Yeah, she uses like little paper charms to basically cast spells, which are based off of what are um, ofuda, which are charms you can buy from Japanese shrines. To me, and very uh, outside of anime and some live action stuff like Battle Royale and other like 90s Japanese pop movies, very ignorant of Japanese culture. But to me, 
the book was just seems so authentic. He, like the centipede women, I would have never guessed that that was kind of a bit of your interpretation. Japan has this great tradition of uh, yokai, which are just monsters, just tons and tons of monsters. And some of them are really weird and cool. And I wanted to, I threw some of them in there. At one point, there's a brief cameo by this creature called a Karakasa Obake, which is a paper parasol that's come to life. It's been inhabited by a spirit, and it hops around in one foot and has a big bulgy eye and a long tongue. And it's so weird and fun that I, I threw one in there briefly, <laughs> along with a couple other things. Uh, you know, that tradition of monster love really explains how you can have literally just hundreds of Pokemon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, it's drawn from the same well. It's going to go back to Pokemon every episode. Your addiction to Pokemon. (laughs) Level 36 and climbing, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I'll try to curb that. I put a little (laughs) note on my laptop. Not Pokemon this time. (laughs) One thing that was fun about the supernatural beings is I liked the contrast between the fact that some of those beings are pretty silly, like the parasol monster. And um, there's other yokai, which are just goofy and silly. There's like giant talking raccoon dogs. One of the beings that shows in my book is a giant severed head on a wheel who's like one of the guardians of hell. But I like the idea of these silly monsters contrasted with the world itself, which is pretty dark. So there's a warlord, and I try to depict death realistically in it. And I always like that contrast. And uh, I actually like the contrast in a lot of fiction where you have a very dark, very gritty world, but then you also have these silly moments or these silly creatures, things that are just absurd. That's kind of like, that happens in real life all the time. I liked the giant squid. I love marine biology, and I love cephalopods. So I, I had to, my first novel, I had to put a squid in there. So <laughs> it was, that was a requirement. It was like my making on my list, Japanese culture, uh, yokai, giant squid. It's going in there. So have you got any oni in your book? Uh, I do actually have oni. At the, at the end, uh, when the characters are, uh, well, I don't want to give it too much away, but at the end, when the characters are getting close to, uh, they're rescuing one of their friends, they're attacked by an army of Oni. Awesome. The bad guy said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this book, I need to read it. Yeah, yeah. now you've sold me. You, you so yeah. how about you uh, go ahead and explain for the unenlightened group here? <laughs> what, what are the Oni? Like kind of ogres, I suppose. Um, um, ogres okay. is a good term for it. They're like ogres, sometimes the word's translated as demon, but that's not really accurate. Yeah, ogres is better. They're muscular, like savage creatures with horns and tusks. And I'm thinking of the guys in Dragon Ball Z when Goku's in the afterlife. Yep, those are Oni. Great. Yeah, they got, okay. they got the red skin and the blue skin, uh, the horns, and they often wear tiger skins. They're, yeah, they're, they're ogres is a good term for it. They're big, fierce creatures. Not necessarily like demonic, but they're, they're threatening. It is really interesting how uh, some anime, especially the more fantastical stuff like Dragon Ball, really does lean fairly heavily on uh, the mythology of the culture. Have you looked at any of the, I suppose, more modern mythologizations of Japan, like the Bushido kind of stuff, you know, the way of the samurai and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I looked into that a little. I looked into, I, mean, I read up on samurai, I read up on warfare. I did read up a little bit on Bushido to try to get the samurai characters fairly accurate. Though I know Bushido is kind of a thing that came later on, actually. It's like 18 something, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the actual book Bushido, yeah. 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 But, but I did read up on it just to get the ideals of what people thought Samurai should be, even though I didn't quite follow all the Bushido rules. Some of the folk tales as well. Like, I was surprised when I was reading them, like, how many times fairies seem to make an appearance. Like, there's a story about the guy who finds a sparrow in some woods, 
and he looks after the sparrow and his wife hates the sparrow and they have this kind of clash and then it ends up that the sparrow is a fairy and can give him all these riches and things and then tricks the wife into and ending up basically dying, I think, and because the guy <laughs> mourns her, even though she's a horrible tomb, she's like, "You're you're just the best person ever. Let's I'll look after you and make you rich." You know what I love for more modern uh, mythology type of Japanese anime is Princess Mononoke. Oh yeah, I would say it's top five for me, and Spirited Away as well. That was a good one, especially for all the crazy monsters in that. And <laughs> yes, Spirited Away was definitely an influence on his book, the, the bathhouse with all the kami showing up. That was definitely part of the influence. My son absolutely loves my neighbor Totoro. He must have watched it. Oh, we go with the giant toy. cat. Yeah, that's a yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one for the kids. Yeah, I really want a cat bus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have that somewhere. I gotta start showing it to my kids more. I love the forest spirits in Mononoke. The little little white guys that would kind of cock their heads to the side. The tree little tree spirits. I wouldn't mind having a couple of those on the house plants at home. <laughs> I'm sure you could probably get one somewhere like on Etsy nowadays. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little, little plastic guy. Bobblehead, perhaps. If you've got someone who's starting to take an interest in this, where's a good place to start? I'd say if someone really wants to learn about yokai, uh, there's a great book. It's one I referenced. It's called The Night Parade of 100 Demons by uh, Matthew Meyer. Uh, he's actually the, the guy who did the cover of my book. I actually, you know, I, I dropped a bunch of money on the cover just because I really wanted this guide in to uh, do the cover of my book but he's got a, like I think three guides now to hundreds of yokai in Japan so that's a I would say definitely get the night parade to start off with uh, again the anime companion by Giles Plotris. Um it's out of print but you can get copies on Amazon um, that it's like over 20 years old so it's not the newest book the anime is all 90s anime but it's got it's just great as a reference to just Japanese culture Little everyday things. If you're looking for like stuff about samurai, ninjas, uh, Osprey does these, all these, their company, they do like military, uh, history books. They have a bunch of great books just on the, the outfits and the gear of samurai and, uh, foot soldiers. I, so I referenced a lot of Osprey books for like the battle scenes and the samurais. And, um, I don't really have a specific book I recommend for Japanese history. I just, I picked a lot of stuff up here and there. Do you watch any, um, Japanese wrestling at all? <laughs> I don't, but I know a friend of mine, he's, he's really into it, so I kind of like vicariously know a little bit about it through him because he's, he's obsessed with it. He loves, he's always showing me videos from it, and it, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I went to see um, New Japan last year in Manchester, and that that was great. So, How does that differ from Olympic wrestling or entertainment wrestling? It is entertainment wrestling, but it's got more of a MMA feel, and they hit each other very hard in wow. safe place. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. There's, like, hard stuff where they're, like, they're smacking each other. And even though it's yeah. um, acting, it sounds like it hurts. Like, they're actually yeah. hitting each other. Not It's not oh. just, like, stage fighting. I have the utmost respect for the world wrestling entertainment type of performers. Everyone knows who's going to win before they get started. But those guys are real athletes. I, I've seen them live. And that's especially when I saw them maybe back in 98 – they had the luchadors, the the Mexican wrestlers, come on beforehand. Those guys are acrobats. Some of the stuff they could do is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. you should see uh, some of the um, modern luchador stuff. It's crazy. This um, what is it? The guy called Dragon Lee and um, Hiromu Takahashi, who were just insane. Like the stuff they do now is like Cirque du Soleil stuff <laughs> out there. <laughs> I just love the look of the characters in the New Japan wrestling. There's a guy called 
Minoru Suzuki, who, if you saw him on a street, you'd just be like, right, I need to get as far away from him as possible. <laughs> he looks like a complete goon, and he's, yeah, he just looks like a complete badass. So, <laughs> they just, they do, they just smack each other around and whack each other over the side of the face with forearms and things. It's, wow. yeah, crazy. I was just thinking about other influences in my book. Uh, one big influence my book was actually, um, it was uh, Dungeons and Dragons. When I was growing up in the late 90s, there was a game called uh, Planescape, which was where your characters could journey throughout like all the planes of existence, the heavens, hells, uh, the Great Tree, the Yggdrasil, Hades, um, just throughout the universe. Um, and I really like this idea that there is just this multiverse. There's people who just, they travel from different worlds. I, I just really like that idea. And that actually ended up getting incorporated into my book. Uh, there, there's a scene where, like, the glimpses you get of the underworld. It's literally just like another world where all these supernatural beings exist and there's cities there and there's civilizations there. and Presumably there's lots of parallels to our world. It's just another world with wow. supernatural beings. And that's where everybody goes when, on our world goes when they die. So that was a big influence on uh, the underworld scenes in my book. I've found the Dungeons and Dragons character alignment sheet the most useful thing for character development. Like my series that I'm on at the minute, it's like, right, how can I get my main character from lawful good to chaotic evil? Go. <laughs> it's like, that's the, that's the story. So. You know, you know where I'm actually going to turn to places like D and D for world building. Uh, my characters in the, the Stone Age book I'm writing in book two, they get into developing book one. They discovered consciousness and, and learned about the individual self. According to Professor Julian Jane's theory, the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. It's a theory that suggests that uh, roughly during the time of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, human beings used to have auditory hallucinations that was a communication between the left brain and the right brain. And only after that point were we able to take our deeper knowledge, our subconscious knowledge, and apply it into our conscious daily existence. And that's when we began to self-identify. So I adopted that theory, uh, and it's never been proven, nor can it be. I adopted that theory of how uh, these Stone Age hominins developed a consciousness. And then after that, in book two, they're going to start adopting religions. And because as this bicamerality and these auditory hallucinations go away, they're left with a lack of, you know, basically they had their last chief or their father or some, they always thought it was some important role model or figure in their life or some leader. And without that, they need a God. So I was going to turn to D&D to find, how do you make up a religion? On the Science Fantasy Hub, the, the website, in, in the section that John M. actually uh, helps me curate, uh, Building Our Worlds, we just got a really great article by A.M. Steiner on the same topic of religion and fantasy fiction. So that's definitely yeah. going to be one of my go-tos as I, well, I'm, I'm dragging butt on the book I'm writing now, so it might be a ways off fans out there, but uh, that's that's the next project I intend to start. I liked that article, actually. I've got the embryonic stages for a religious character in a short story I'm currently writing, and I've actually been looking at his article to figure out how their religion works, because their religion is based off of, again, octopus gods. Because that's going to come up a lot. Octopods are going to be a major part of my fiction, but... It's Pokemon uh, Go for me, it's octopus for you. <laughs> the character kind of just became religious over time. I remember they would keep, like, praying to this mother octopus, and it kept happening. And I was like, this character is devoutly religious. 
I should figure out what the heck their religion is like. Yeah, um, you've got to know because it's going to influence how your character is going to go about their day. In this book, I use Japanese mythology. Um, the, the gods appear. Izanagi shows up. Uh, Japanese gods. You know, there's the character. There's the underworld in there. Ghosts and stuff. Um, with Japan, uh, because you know you've seen it, Japanese mythology shows up all the time in um, anime. It's part of their culture. And in the Western world, you know, predominantly Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian, Jewish and Jewish and Christian uh, mythology shows up a lot in movies. You get devils, angels, stuff. It becomes part of pop culture. Um, the thing is, the, my story at Yomi's Gate, I plan to do sequels eventually. I want the characters to go to other parts, other areas around the Pacific. The idea, I call it the Magma Sea, because it's going to focus on areas around the I was going to call it the Ring of Fire series, but that's already a TV. That's already a book series, so I oh, can't do that. I, I think you're actually touching on the actual volcanic hotspots. Am I correct? Right. Yeah, because okay. the character Sakura is a fire demigoddess. She she can control fire. She actually can swim through magma. So she's going to like go along the magma hotspots along the Pacific. So she's going to call to other cultures. And the the sequel I'm plotting out is going to take place in Hawaii. The thing is, though, it's I mean, I'm white, Western. I'm very aware of the fact that the islands were flat out stolen from the Hawaiian people. Uh, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm a white person borrowing native mythology. So I don't want it to feel like cultural appropriation. When I was thinking about that, I'm like, I wanted to feature the Hawaiian gods. And I, wanted, I actually, I've been researching Hawaiian mythology. I went to Hawaii a lot as a kid and in high school. I've read a lot extensively about Hawaiian mythology and culture, try to get books from native voices. But then again, I'm, I'm kind of iffy and nervous about putting Hawaiian gods in there because I don't want to feel like I'm like, appropriating the culture. So with the Magma Sea Cycle, I've tried to say that in the first book, it's set in another dimension. It's not our Earth in the past. It's another world that looks like our Earth, that has some parallel history and parallel cultures, but it's not our Earth, which I don't – I mean, it doesn't totally mitigate the whole idea because if I still use gods who are, have Hawaiian names, it's still – some appropriation. So, so it's, it's just like trying to be careful about being respectful of other people's cultures. I'd love to use Native American culture and Native American spirit characters, ones that I'm permitted to use. I know there's some Native American culture that you're not supposed to talk about. It's, it's really supposed to be off limits to people who aren't of that particular nation. So I wouldn't touch that, but I'd like to use other characters like Coyote or um, maybe using the Horned Serpent or the Underwater Panther or using Aztec gods. I just want to be really careful about that. I want to approach them respectfully. It's a, that's an interesting point, and one that I covered with uh, Zachary Wheeler in my book club interviews uh, when we were talking about, in, in his uh, series Max in the Multiverse, he has two characters that are alien lesbians, and him being a male can obviously not speak from the experience of being a lesbian. And it's even when I write female characters, I... I find it so crucial to have female beta readers in order to just make sure I've given the character credit or enough reality to, to be fair to something that I can't personally yeah. represent. As long as they are a whole human being and not just a glaring stereotype, mm-hmm. have depth, and they're believable as an individual, I think that people that share that culture or heritage that you don't participate in can respect and enjoy that. But again, as much as possible, I 
try to get the actual authentic voices. My books have LGBT characters and I have LGBT friends. I even know people. I'll try to get people to help me with stuff on like my writing groups to help me with things that I might, I might just get wrong because yeah, I'm a straight male, but yeah, I think that's very important to I think, do research and if, when possible, get somebody who actually is of that mindset and have them critique your story. Sure. Yeah. You definitely don't want to shoo off uh, demographics based on those sort of things. Any final parting thoughts on Japanese mythology? I hope I can see more Japanese fantasy because I found it in writing this. I, I really enjoyed this kind of setting. I found some other books set in uh, Japan, of uh, fantasy Japan. But really, there's not nearly enough. They're hard to find, especially indie authors. I would love to see more indie authors writing in a Japanese setting. I've got an author friend actually who is. It's not. It's like an alternative history America, but it's very much in that vein of like Japanese tropes and mythology and things like that. It's, it's like a novella series called Valiant Lineage by Lynn Sheridan. And I would really recommend that. It's got all the crazy anime stuff going on. There's vampires and zombies, and there's also stuff with Sir Galahad from King Arthur's in there. And like, <laughs> it's just this whole cultural mashup. It's great. Nice. Awesome. One more indie author uh, comes to mind is Tristram Lowe. And his book, Headless, is set in modern Japan. Nice. But there are a lot of uh, Japanese ghosts, and it's a... Uh, bit of a thriller very enjoyable and he actually did an article for building our worlds about japanese ghosts so check him out there and move on to his novel headless i'd love to see more indie authors set in uh, other places too like um, indonesia well, southeast asia in general uh, new zealand i'd love to see more fiction set in uh, the pacific islands in polynesia i've seen a few uh, they're really rare i found one older series called uh the roof. There's a book called the, the Roof of Voyaging, which has got a Polynesian setting, and the Polynesian stuff is really great. And there's there's like a token Anglo-Saxon white character in there, which is really jarring and weird. It seems very obvious that like the author or his publisher threw in this random white guy in a fantasy Polynesian setting as I guess the audience surrogate. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but other than that. It's, a great book. I'd love to find more fantasy books set in Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia, South Pacific. One of the things I love about reading is discovering different places. This has been a great talk, guys. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it was wonderful, and thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing your wisdom on uh, Japanese mythology, and I always love to talk about anime. Where's the best place to find you then online? My book, it's at nocturnalcpress.com. I'm also on uh, Twitter at John J. Mazaris. I got a couple of blogs. My author blog is Bard at blogspot.com. Um, I also do a blog on uh, cryptids, state cryptids. Um, I had a lot of fun with that. It, it kind of ties into the whole Japanese mythology thing. It's modern American mythology. But that's at uh, statecryptids.blogspot.com. I'm on Facebook, Joy, at Yomi's Gate. And for all our listeners scrambling to find a pen in their car, don't worry. Just go to the show notes. We've got all his links. And uh, you can find my stuff at sciencefantasyhub.com. Don't forget to go to the roundtable if you're an author or reading the science fiction and fantasy of the roundtable, the Facebook group, also in the show notes. Well, this was a fun one. Um, until next time, guys. Well, see you guys around. Cheerio. Cheerio.